Well, tonight we're going to be looking at prophecy predicts a people. You would expect, and we've sort of touched on some of these prophecies the past couple of weeks, you would expect that God would not leave us uncertain as to what He's going to do in the last days. You would expect that He's going to, he's going to uh, fulfill His promise that surely the Lord God does nothing, but He reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets. Well, tonight, let's begin by taking our Bibles. Do you have your Bibles with you? Yes? Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to begin with just a little bit of a, a, an insight into the two women of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, let's move there quickly. And we're going to look at uh, the first few verses. Revelation chapter 12, what we find here of course, in a symbolic book, is that God is using a symbol, a, a beautiful symbol, to represent a people, a group of people. Now, this is how it starts in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. A, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, a moon under her feet, on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And verse 3, another great sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems or crowns on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, just a little bit of insight into the symbolism that we've seen already so far. What we see is a woman. That's how the chapter begins, right? A woman, and she's clothed with what? She's clothed with the sun, God's own light, God's own creation. And it says that on her head, a garland or a crown of 12 stars. It doesn't say with 12 stars. It's of 12 stars. You see the difference between with 12 stars and of 12 stars? I and mean, we could make a crown with 12 stars, right? But this is a crown of 12 stars. This is a woman clothed with the sun. This is, you could call this a celestial woman, right? This is a woman who is, who is standing with the moon on her feet. In fact, we read down here, and um, she's, she's standing with the moon on her feet. The, she's clothed with the sun, her, uh, a crown of 12 stars, and she's she has an arch nemesis that's trying to devour her. Now, we already know what that great dragon represents because we've read it later in the chapter. In verse 9, it says that great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, right? So the great dragon represents Satan, but notice that Satan always works through some sort of entity, just like God works through entities, doesn't he? Does God use people? Does God use organizations? Does God use you and I? To help, to help do his work. Well, also Satan does the same thing. And Satan here is working through the empire of Rome. Now, we don't have time. I wish I had time. Man, we just don't have enough time. We could have a five, six, six more weeks of this seminar, and we'd still be unpacking Revelation, right? But, but here in, in, the, in, the, in this symbol of the dragon with, um, the dragon with uh, seven heads and ten horns, you remember the dragon with ten horns in Daniel chapter 7? It's the same entity. What was that? What was the dragon that had ten horns in Daniel 7? It was Rome, right? And Rome is the one who stood ready to devour the Christ child as soon as it was born, right? Seven heads, and we, we read in Revelation chapter 17 that the seven heads of the dragon are the seven hills where the woman sits. And so this is a symbol of the city of seven hills. Um, which is, again, Rome, right? Which was where the, the woman of Revelation 17 would have her, 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 uh, her, her base, you might say. So here you have Rome and the devil trying to destroy somebody. Notice, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, some would say, well, this has to be Mary, right? That's what some people would say. Well, Mary doesn't stand on the moon with the sun clothing her and a, a, a crown of 12 stars. You understand what I'm saying? And so we understand this to be a symbol of God's people. Now, before we get very far in this, I want you to hold your finger right here in Revelation 12, and I want us to look back a few um, verses, or a few, a few verses, all the way back to the Old Testament, more than a few verses, a few chapters, a few books, all the way to the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to read Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2. 
Now, we've got a lot to cover tonight, so I hope that we can move quickly here. Why don't you just say amen when you find Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2. All right, let's go ahead, and um, I love to hear the sound of those pages turning. Um, Jeremiah says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a what? Lovely and delicate woman. The daughter of Zion, who's he talking about? He's talking about God's people, right? Now, if you'd wonder about that, we can always... Uh, we can always confirm that in the book of Ephesians. You don't have to turn there, but you can put it in your notes if you like. Ephesians chapter 5, remember the church is compared to the bride of Christ, right? Um, Paul, Paul's talking about how a husband should treat his wife, but then he says, but I'm speaking regarding Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. So this isn't something that's very hard to understand when Revelation uses a woman to represent God's people. Jesus is born among God's people. Who is the devil particularly angry about at all times of earth's history? He's angry with God's people, right? He's trying to destroy God's people. A man-child is born within God's people to save, to save the earth, and the devil tries to devour him. But is he successful? Notice with me what happens. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne, clearly Jesus. Then the woman, who's the woman now? It's God's people, right? It's, it's the church. The woman, was, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for God, uh, by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, we've talked about that time, times, the dividing times, 42 months, 1,260 days, a couple of times. We believe, I believe, that this is the great time of persecution when God's church was, was threatened nearly with annihilation because of the, the absence of God's Word, because of the prevalence of apostasy and compromise, and there were, yet there were people some of them hiding even in the mountains and, and hills of the earth who were secretly still maintaining the, the Word of God. God's truth was in hiding for a period of time. We're going to talk more about that this evening. Now, we notice this isn't the end of the woman, right? Because as after this time, which we find again in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14, after this time is finished, though there's still a remnant. Now, what is a remnant, by the way? It's what remains, right? It's the end. Um, so if, if you go to buy cloth and you have a big bolt of cloth, the, uh, what's left at the very end, after there's only you know, a few yards left maybe, that they call the remnant. Now, is the remnant like what the first part of the cloth was or is it completely different? It's the same thing, right? It's a continuation. And what God's trying to say here is, look, the woman that went into hiding, which was a pure church, is going to come out of hiding. It's going to be a pure church as well. It's going to be the remnant of her seed. And how is it described in verse 17? Which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We studied about the testimony of Jesus Christ last night, right? And so this is a, this is a prophecy of what's going to happen in the last days. Now, uh, hold, your, hold your horses before we, get, um, before we get any further in this. And let's look in Revelation chapter 17 now. Revelation 17 shows the antithesis, the opposite of the woman of Revelation chapter 12. There are two women in Revelation. God is good enough to let us know not only what he's going to do, but what the enemy is going to do. And so here we find Revelation chapter 17, and it says this, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked to me. Um, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy. Now let me, let's just stop right here. What does a woman represent in Bible prophecy, in the Bible? A church, a religious movement, God's people, when it's talking about a pure woman, we saw that. But here you see another woman, she's sitting on a beast. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy, from what we've learned already? A kingdom or a government, right? Civil powers. So here you have a very accurate picture of the church that existed during the Middle Ages when church and state were combined. You have a woman riding on a beast, and she's riding on the same beast that we saw back in Revelation chapter 12. It has, it has, a, um, it has the, same, uh, it's the same entity. Rome is what set this woman up. Now, notice with me, we continue on. And um, 
So he carried me away in the spirit. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Same, same beast. The woman was arrayed in what? Was she arrayed with the light, the glory of the sun? No. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with, is she, is she adorned, does she have a crown of 12 stars? No. Instead, she has human adornment. She is arrayed with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, this is all symbolic language, right? But what do we find here? We find that ancient Babylon is being borrowed and brought up into the prophecy of what will happen in the future. And it's describing, it's describing a, a, an ex, a, 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 a religious movement, you might say. It's describing a, a, a system in which the, uh, the, the uh, ancient Babylonian worship and stories are being evoked in the New Testament. Now, what does Babylon mean? Do you know where the name Babylon comes from? It comes, yes, sir. It comes from Babel, that's right. And it wasn't probably too far away from where Babylon was built, that the Tower of Babel must have been built. I don't know exactly the location of that. Um, but Babel, what, what does the word Babel connote? What does that mean? Does anyone know that? We're getting, digging deeper and deeper into this etymology here. Um, that's where God confused the languages. Remember, they were building a tower that reached the heavens so that God could never destroy them by a flood again. And what did God do? God said, I'll, I'll see that you can't build something without my blessing. And he confused the languages. And so someone asked for a load of bricks and he, they brought a load of nails. And someone else asked for a hammer and they got cement. And, and pretty soon they were all mad and fighting at each other and uh, the Tower of Babel became Babylon. And um, that simply means confusion. So what you have here in, 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 uh, in Revelation is religious confusion that at one time, and at one time once again will be, uh, united, uniting the powers of church and state, religion and government together. Now, so here in Revelation you see these two women. Does that mean that, does that, mean that God is sort of schizophrenic? Does God have two churches? One of them's a pure church and one of them's a not a pure church? You think that's the way it works? Actually, the Bible's pretty clear. Um, when he says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So then why do we have two different stories in the book of Revelation? And why can we say, are there so many different denominations and churches and Christian groups in the world today? If there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, are those good questions to ask? You think we might want to see if the Bible has answers? I want us to look at a prophecy tonight, and so turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the seven, well, not all of them, but at least the first four of the seven seals, and we're going to be looking at what we might call Revelation's four horsemen. Revelation's four horsemen. Now, I understand that if you were to read a, a, uh, some of the modern interpreters of Revelation, particularly if they come from a futurist point of view, they're going to have a very different interpretation of these four horsemen. One, of, one friend of mine that I was studying this with, she, she insisted on calling them the four ponies. The four ponies of Revelation. And she read in her little commentary, which was, you know, a, a futurist interpretation of the prophecy. She read, read a certain understanding. I come from a historicist model of biblical interpretation, of prophetic interpretation, so that I believe that the, the visions begin with the time of the prophet and they carry us all the way to the time of the end. That's the way Daniel 2 worked. That's the way Daniel 7 works. That's the way Daniel 8 and 9 and 10 through 12 works. And, and so that's how I see de the, the seven churches. We didn't have a chance to, to talk in detail about the seven churches, but that's the first, set of, the first vision of, of the book of Revelation. Then you have the seven seals, and that's what we're looking at right now. And then you have the seven trumpets, and that also covers the entire same period. You might, well, why would God be redundant? Well, the same reason he was redundant in the book of Daniel. Daniel 2 told us all the way to the end. Why do we need any more, right? But Daniel 7 gives us a lot more detail, doesn't it? it? We understand, for example, about that little horn and the great blaspheming power. That didn't come into the picture in Daniel chapter 2. So God has to repeat to give us the context so we know what he's talking about, but he gives us more information towards the end of time. So
So let's look here in Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look at the four horsemen and uh, the first four seals. And I believe, I believe that these four horsemen represent four periods of the Christian church. And they help us to answer the question, why do we have such confusion in the Christian world today? Why do we have so many different ideas, so many different groups, so many different denominations? And I want to say one thing at the very beginning. I, I may repeat it several times here. I want to say one thing very clearly. I believe that God saves people of all different denominations. I don't believe that, I don't believe any of us have a corner on heaven or that we have, we have the sole, you know, representative rights of the real estate market of the new earth or any of those things. I think that God saves people of every faith who are honestly and sincerely doing everything they can to obey the word of God and to follow what they find therein. I believe that, okay? I also believe that God has predicted in prophecy a people that will emerge at the end of time. That doesn't have to be a specific structure or denomination, but it is going to be a group of people, a movement with ideas that match what the Bible describes their ideas will be. Does that make sense? Is that fair? And so I'm, 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 I want to be very clear here. I don't believe a denomination can save us. I don't believe that, that, um, uh, that, uh, that people that are of one denomination or another denomination are necessarily going to be lost. I'm not saying any of those things, but I do believe God predicts a people, a movement of ideas at the end of time that are defined in the Word of God. We've been looking at some of those, don't, haven't we? Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, the, the remnant who emerges keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, right? That's what we studied last night. We, we, Revelation 14, verse 12, um, they, they have the faith of Jesus and they uh, keep the commandments of God, right? Over and over, the same type of description is given in the book of Revelation to make us believe that there's going to be a movement in the last days of people who do what Revelation says they're going to do, right? And that's not me saying that. It's not, it's not me. It's not, a, it's not a denomination saying that. It's not a pastor saying that. I hope you can see that in the book of Revelation itself. If God says it, it's important, right? If I say it, it's not so important. But if God says it, it's important. And so if God describes a group of people with a certain idea, a certain focus, a certain message, a certain mission, we talked about the first angel's message of Revelation 14, right? Fear God, give glory to Him. The hour of His judgment has come. Worship the Creator. That's all a part of describing what God's last day movement will be. It's not defining a certain denomination, but it's saying these are the ideas. These are the, these are the concepts that I want to take to the world in the last days. And God's people have always been defined not so much by a structure or a hierarchy. God's people have been defined by the, the truth that they're entrusted to take to the world. Does that make sense? Now, there's a lot of, if you look at the church of God in the days of Moses, there was a lot of people there that weren't very helpful in the mission of the church, right? There were some complainers, as I recall. There were some people that had some problems with sin and immorality, as I recall. There was problems. But they had been entrusted with the sanctuary, which was the gospel, Right? They had been entrusted with the Ten Commandments, which was God's standard of living. So they were God's people, as feeble and frail and, and faulty as they were, they were God's people on the earth at that time. So God is going to have a people. So let's look, Revelation chapter 6, and let's begin here, are you there? With verses 1 and 2, Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2. Now I saw the Lamb, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked... And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth, he went out conquering and to conquer. So here's what John sees. He sees the, the church, the first church, very much like what we see the, the conquering king coming in the clouds in Revelation chapter 19, a white faith. The, the first church is represented by a white horse, and white represents purity. Wouldn't it have been thrilling to live in the first century church right after the ascension of Christ? Um, the disciples were filled with so much courage and lived by so much faith because they had walked and they had talked with Jesus. They had seen Him resurrected. They had seen Him ascend into the heavens. They knew that He was coming back. They believed His promises with all their hearts, and so they went everywhere sharing the glad news that Jesus was alive, Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus could save them from their sins, and that Jesus was coming again. Oh, they wanted to tell that news to the whole world. 
The Bible says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Wouldn't it have been exciting to be a part of that apostolic church, to be a part of that pure church? Actually, the good news um, was preached to every creature under heaven, every part of the then-known world. Paul prayed in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23 that the Colossian believers would not be moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, am a minister. So Paul evidently said by the end of his life, the gospel had been taken to the whole world. Isn't that exciting? Now, if under the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel could be taken to the whole world in one generation in the apostles' time, don't you think it's still possible today that if we were to be filled with the Holy Spirit as they were, that we would also be able to take God's message to every part of the world. So the early church was a growing church. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, it says in Acts 5.14, multitudes of both men and women. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, we see in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. So people were baptized into Jesus. They were baptized into the body of Christ, which is His church. It was very important for the early disciples to be faithful to Jesus. Um, when the disciples were warned not to teach in Jesus' name, you remember what Peter said? Peter and, Peter and John said, look, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey who? God rather than man. All of a sudden, where the fear of man had been in their hearts before the cross, now the fear of God was in their hearts. Isn't that exciting? The fear of God. They wanted to please God. They said, we would rather obey God than men. That's the whole issue in, great, in, in prophecy, isn't it? Daniel chapter 1, who are you going to obey? Daniel chapter 3, who are you going to obey? Revelation chapter 13, who are you going to obey? The, the question for God's people in the last days is answered here in the uh, words of the apostles. We ought to obey God rather than rather than men. So the early church had pure faith because they had been with Jesus. They, they believed what Jesus believed. They taught what Jesus taught. They lived like Jesus lived. And this, friends, is the same kind of faith that we need to have today. I believe that God's last people in the end of time, the remnant which emerge, will be like the apostles, a pure faith. It will be a faith that believes what Jesus believed and teaches what Jesus taught and lives as Jesus lived. A faith that looks forward to spreading the good news of salvation to all our friends and neighbors, to the entire world. This is the faith of the believers of the first century, and this was represented by a white conquering horse. It was represented by a white conquering horse, and this period would have ended in about 100 A.D., as the end, as the last of the apostles passed to their graves, this period of fidelity and purity in the Christian church also began coming to an end. But what did John see when Jesus opened the second seal? Verse 3, Revelation chapter uh, 6 and verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, another horse fiery red went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. What we see happening is that after about 100 AD, the Christians began to be severely persecuted in the Roman Empire. Many, many were slain, many of them fed to the lions in the great Colosseums around the empire. It was a terrible, bloody time for the Christian church. It was a very, very difficult time, but still the church grew. In fact, one historian observed as, they, as he watched the, the church in the Roman world being persecuted and persecuted and persecuted and yet growing still, one historian said that the blood of Christians were like, was like seed. As people died and gave their lives for Jesus, more were raised up to take their places. And the good news of salvation spread all across the Roman Empire and all across what was then the, the known world of that time. So the red horse represents a blood-stained faith. It represents the, the faith of Christians who are giving their lives in sacrifice. The second seal is the Christian church from A.D. 100 to about A.D. 323. Now, some people ask, well, why do you pick 323? It's because just before Constantine, you remember Constantine, Constantine was the first Christian empire. He would have been converted. He was the first Christian emperor. He wasn't an empire. Sorry. Um, he was the first Christian emperor, and he was converted about this time. But 
before this, there were 10 years of very, very severe persecution under the emperor Diocletian. And Diocletian particularly hated the Christians and um, did everything he tood, could to, um, to annihilate the faith. And so we find a, a distinct break between the persecuted Christianity and now the accepted Christianity when the emperor himself becomes a Christian with, uh, with Constantine. And so the, the red horse represented the church from 100 to 323 A.D. Now the, the third horse, what do we see here? And we'll look in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. That's, a, that's for weighing, it's for judging, right? And verse 6, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. All symbols, we don't have time to look into all of that today. But here you find we move from the white horse to the blood red horse to now the black horse. Now if white represents purity, what do you think black represents? Yeah, we understand that that um, this would have been a, an impure church. And this is no surprise, because if we look at right here, as the demarcation of severe persecution ends with, with Constantine becoming an emperor, right? Um, when, when we look at this severe persecution ending, all of a sudden the church is not, is not persecuted anymore. It, you don't have to be really serious about your faith to follow the truth of the Savior of Jesus Christ. Um, because it's easy, it's popular. The emperor himself is a Christian, right? And those pagan practices swept into the church at breathtaking speed, one after another after another. I told you that Constantine himself baptized his whole Roman army, the army of Rome, by marching them under, under military orders through the Tiber River. They didn't have a choice. They were marched through the Tiber River, and Constantine says, now you're all baptized, you're all Christians. Well, Clearly, they didn't understand what baptism meant, right? Um, that may have been immersion, may not have been, I don't know, but it really wasn't being born again of water and the Spirit, right? That's pretty clear. And so here you find that the church in this period is represented by a black horse compromised faith. Now, this should not come as a surprise to us because Paul himself predicted this. Notice with me what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will arise speaking perverse things. So even from within the Christian church, right? False teachers would arise. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. To draw away the disciples after themselves. You, you see, it's a problem, friends, when people want to have their own disciples instead of making disciples for Jesus Christ. It's a problem when religion becomes a great business and we begin to try to, try to win people to our own following rather than winning souls for Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says would happen. There would come compromise and apostasy in the Christian church. It's a time of compromise faith, and paganism has united with Christianity. Daniel predicted this in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 12. It says, Because of transgression, an army was given over to the, the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast the, the truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So the truth is being cast down to the ground, and, and, and this power that is done away with God's truth is still prospering. You know, many truths were cast down. Many truths were lost sight of during this time in the Christian church. The first major truth to be lost sight of during this time period was salvation by faith alone through Jesus Christ. He was, this salvation was replaced by the requirements of the church. If you remember, we studied before that salvation, according to the Bible, is a free gift. Amen? Amen. It's a gift because if we've sinned, we've all sinned, and we don't deserve it. We deserve to die, and the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life. So salvation is a free gift, but the church lost sight of that. And instead they started teaching that you had to earn, you had to work, you had to do the, do the sacraments and do different things and, and buy candles and say your prayers and do your penance and, and do the rosary and, and have all the other sacraments fulfilled in order for you to be saved. And this, this obscured the truth that salvation is through Jesus Christ. Through His blood alone we are saved, not by our works. Um, the, uh, the simple gospel as it is in the cross of Christ was compromised during this time period, and it was replaced by the requirements of the church. 
You see, the Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. And so that's, that's why I believe we can confess our sins to Jesus and He forgives us. And yet the church invented, the Christians were told that they had to go to a priest to have their sins uh, forgiven. They had to pay for their sins to be forgiven. They had to buy indulgences. You know, one of the saddest things that I've ever experienced, um, when I think of the spiritual sagas that I observe people on, if you go to the Scala Santa, the Holy Stairs in, in Rome today, it's right across the street from the actually the main church in the city of Rome. Many people think St. Peter's is the, the main church, but St. Peter's was built more recently, and um, it's the St. John the Lateran is the church, the official church of the Bishop of Rome. The Bishop of Rome is the head of that church, and it's, it's on the other side of the Colosseum from Vatican City, so it's, a, it's, it's a, on the other side of Rome. But there it is on top of the hill, St. John the Lateran, and, and across the street from it is the Scala Santa, the Holy Steps, And those steps are supposedly, and I say supposedly, they are supposedly the very steps which Jesus climbed on that night in Pilate's judgment hall. It was Constantine's mother, in fact, a Christian, who had them miraculously transported from Jerusalem to Rome. There they are. And they're they're stone steps, or marble or whatever they are, they're stone steps. Now, um, on those steps are remnants, stains, which are said to be the very blood stains from Jesus' blood as he was walking up the steps. Now, I don't know how that blood stain stayed there from 31 AD to 330 AD or whenever they were miraculously transported, voila, Um, but that's what they're told. Now, they've covered the steps with wooden covers so that they don't get worn away because so many people are climbing those steps, and what they do is they, they kneel, and if you, go at, if you go after five during the evening rush hour, people start coming from all directions. On their way back from work, they're stopping at the Scala Santa, and they start on the first step, and they're saying a rosary. They start on the first step, and then they go up to the second step, and all the way up, kneeling on every single step, and saying a prayer at every single stair, and when they cross the little plexiglass windows, which reveal the blood stains from Christ, they stop and they kiss those plexiglass windows. Now, I believe, that is their, I believe they're honest and sincere, and right next to it on the wall is a sign that says plenary indulgence. If you do that, your sins will be forgiven. And, um, and right there is a sign that says if you do it during the Lent, you have, you have indulgence for all sins from all, for all time. So if you go during that time particularly, you're going to see a lot of people there. It's so crowded after five, it's so crowded that when one stair moves, they all have to move. It's just packed full of people going up. This, and I, it breaks my heart when I see that happening. I applaud them for their sincerity, but I just want to cry out and say, I want to say salvation is a free gift. We confess our sins to Jesus. He forgives us. Don't trust saying a prayer on every stair. Trust the Savior. Don't trust your works. Trust the blood of Jesus. And it was on those very steps that Martin Luther, we'll talk about him in a little while, Martin Luther, all of a sudden, he'd been studying his Bible, all of a sudden as he was going through that process, trying to have his sins forgiven, a verse flashed through his mind, the just shall live by his faith. Martin Luther, in the middle of ascending that staircase, he stood up and he walked out. He realized climbing those stairs was not living by faith in Jesus. So during this time, the, the uh, practice of repentance and going to a priest and, and confessing their sins to men were, were, uh, was, was developed. They couldn't go to the, boldly to the throne of God anymore, and people began to accept these traditions because they didn't have the Bible to study for themselves. Printing presses had not been uh, invented yet. Bibles in the common languages were actually outlawed. Many people accepted what the church told them, and the Christian faith simply became corrupted. Now, a second Bible truth that was compromised had to do with worshiping 
created things rather than worshiping the Creator. God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourselves to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. And so in the, in the Ten Commandments, it said don't make graven images for the purpose of worship. Don't bow down to, your, to them and, and serve them. And yet the church actually began doing just that. The Ten Commandments made it very clear, but the church said we think. We'll help. We'll help you in your worship of God by having these icons, by having these images. A third Bible truth compromised during this period had to do not with the second commandment, we just talked about that, but it had to do with the fourth commandment and the day of worship. Notice what the Bible says in Daniel as he saw this. In Daniel 7 verse 15, he says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. During this time of compromised faith, people followed tradition rather than following God rather than following his word. The change from Sabbath to Sunday was brought about by the Emperor Constantine in AD 321, and the church accepted this change. The first civil Sunday law was passed in March 7 of 321. And so here you have this period of compromised faith beginning with about AD 323 and ending in AD 536. Around 536 to 538, we're seeing the transition then between the, uh, the, the, the Christian Roman Empire or the, the, uh, with the emperor as its head and then the transition now to the papal Roman Empire with the Bishop of Rome at its head and we see the next horse galloping onto the scene. But notice with me what the St. Catherine Catholic Church Sentinel says regarding this change of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. May 21, 1995, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Now, this is just an admission that, look, during this time, the word of God was compromised. During this time, there was a change, not because of, of God's commandments, but because of the ideas of man. Now, let's look at the fourth seal here, and this begins in Revelation chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So here you have a pale horse coming onto the scene, and um, ridden by death itself, a dead faith is represented by the, first, by the fourth horse. So the first one was a white horse, a pure faith. The second was a red, blood-red horse, a persecuted faith. The third one was a black horse, a corrupt faith. And by the time we get to the institutionalizing of this faith, the traditionalizing of this faith, it's simply represented as a dead horse, um, a dead faith represented by the fourth seal. It was a time of the union of church and state. The Holy Roman Empire was fully developed by this time, and it not only became a religious state, but also a political state. We have a union of the church with politics. Remember the fornication talked about in Revelation chapter 17? What is fornication? Fornication is an, an inappropriate relationship. It's, a, it's an intimacy which God has not blessed. Would you say that? That's what fornication is. And when the church and state unite and the, the woman is seen riding the beast, this is what the Bible calls fornication. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not what God wants of the, of the church at all. And so here you have this, this uh, union between church and state. From Church History Century 2, Chapter 2, Section 2, it sounds like a lot of twos there, doesn't it? Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed, what does he say? Baptized paganism. You can understand why it would be represented by this black or, or, or dead horse, this uh, pale horse with death as its rider. Remember, at this time, 
God's people did not have access to His Word. It was actually against the law, and the printing press wasn't yet invented, as we mentioned. Without access to God's Word, people followed after traditions, and they were influenced by pagan ceremonies that crept into the church. This is sometimes why it's called the Dark Ages, because the light of truth was almost forgotten. Some people, however, still continued resisting. They still had some inkling of God's truth or portions of His Scriptures, and 50 million Christians were put to death during this time period. Um, Spiritually, it was dark as traditions replaced the Word of God, buying forgiveness through sins, uh, of sins for, buying forgiveness for sins through penances and indulgences, and pagan theories of the afterlife, including the idea of purgatory, became accepted as fact. Um, you can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. There's no limbo. There's no purgatory. There's no place where we go bef- before to, you know, to, to atone for some of our sins before we can go to heaven or, or, or whatever it may be. But the, here we see that these types of ideas were making their way into the Christian church one after another after another. And would God's truth be trodden down forever? Would God's people be completely eliminated from the earth? The light of truth was even shining through the darkness. Last night I told you a little bit about the Waldenses. I wish we could all just go on a church history tour to the Waldensian Valleys in northern Italy. You would be inspired as you see how these people kept the light of truth burning for 600 years through some of the most fierce persecutions ever encountered. They had God's Word. They uh, taught their children to memorize and to write God's Word. And here's a picture of one of those ancient Bibles that hand-copied portions of the Scriptures. And um, they were missionaries that went all throughout the, uh, the, the countries of Europe, and they scattered the seeds that would eventually become the Protestant Reformation. After the Waldenses, there came a reformer, a Bible student in Prague by the name of John Huss. Huss, along with his friend Jerome, discovered that there was more, it was more important to obey God than to obey the church or to obey man. Because of their stand uh, for the Word of God, because they chose to obey God rather than men, they were actually burned at the stake. And if you go to Prague today, Prague is one of the most beautiful cities of Europe. If you go to Prague today, you will find in the square right there next to the church, right downtown, you will find a huge monument to Huss and Jerome. Because Prague eventually became a, a Protestant city, but at that time it wasn't, and Huss and Jerome were burned at the stake, and after Huss and Jerome, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther discovered the Bible truth of salvation by grace alone, and some people ask the question, well, if Huss and Jerome were studying their Bibles, and they were discovering new truths, and they were telling the people about it, obviously, that's why they were persecuted and ended up being burned at the stake. If Martin Luther was such a great scholar and he translated the whole Bible into the German language, why didn't Husson Jerome and Martin Luther and John Calvin, why didn't they just discover all the truth, right? Why didn't they just find all of the errors? Well, remember, it took hundreds of years for these errors to slowly creep into the Christian church. Do you realize how hard it is for us to change our way of thinking? It's really hard. We've been doing something a certain way for generations and generations, and in this case it had been 1,500 years that, or close to it, 1,200 years that people had been doing it a certain way, and it was assumed it had always been that way. It's hard to change. And you might see one or two things that you need to change, but it's hard to see 10 or 20 or 30 or 50, right? I'm also thankful that God doesn't just hit us with everything all at once. Aren't you glad about that? God doesn't just show us everything that we've got wrong. Um, he, he's, he's working with us. Even the disciples of Jesus weren't able to learn everything all at once. You realize that? Change takes time. And um, I want to encourage you, if you struggle with grasping or even with changing things you've already grasped, I want to encourage you, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart and life. Let him, let him make things clear. I'm not saying procrastinate. I'm just saying don't be stressed if it doesn't all fit together all at once because it takes time. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I don't know about you, but if I had heard that, if I was John or Matthew or Luke, or I guess Luke wasn't one of the 12, but if I was one of the 12 disciples and and um, I heard that being said, it would be sort of like a little bit of a prick in the heart, wouldn't it? It'd be sort of like, ah, like, 
what is it that Jesus wants to tell me, but he can't tell me? Wouldn't you just be a little curious? Yeah. And so this, friends, just, just a little, little bit of a personal testimony. My desire is to live with such a willing mind and open heart that God is able to tell me what he needs to tell me as quickly as possible. Does that make sense? I don't want to be, I don't want Jesus to say, well, Chester, I had a lot of other things I wanted to bless you with in this life, a lot of other truth to set you free, a lot of other understandings, but you weren't able to bear them. I want, I want him to do the work in my heart so that he can tell me all that's on his mind and he can show me. And so this is, this is the experience that the, uh, that, the, uh, that the reformers had. They were discovering new truths. They were discovering things that had been laying dormant for centuries, millennia. And they were discovering them and they were excited about them. But often, once they discovered one or two things, I mean, Martin Luther discovered that the just shall live by faith. Now, he had his work cut out for him just telling the Christian church that the just shall live by faith, right? I mean, this was a battle. He, was, he almost died. I mean, they would have killed him if they could have just because of his stand for sola scriptura and sola gracia and sola fide, only by the word of God, only by grace, only by faith. Just that, just that discovery was enough. That was a whole lifetime of work to try to bring to the, bring to the world. But when he died, the Lutheran church was established and uh, his believers took what he said and formed the church, and for them, that's where they stopped. If that's what Martin Luther believed, that's what they believed. But God wasn't finished with Martin Luther. And John Calvin down in Geneva, if you go down to Geneva, Switzerland, by the way, you can go down to the, the very church built in the 1300s. It's the very church, which was a Roman Catholic church when Calvin came to Geneva, which became the Protestant church where he preached every Sunday. And you can go there to that church. In fact, you can climb the steeple and go up and see the, the lake with the jet d'eau uh, down there in Lake Geneva. And you can, you can see the very church where Calvin was pastor. You can see the school where he started, the, the academy they called it then, now the University of Geneva. And there there's a great Reformation wall with, with, uh, with statues of the various reformers. There's thousands of people in that park walking around the Reformation wall. And I think if you asked... 90% of them would have no idea what the Reformation was. <laughs> That's ancient history. There's just a bunch of stone statues over there. They have no idea that these were people who discovered important truth. Calvin taught that we should not only be saved by grace, but also come boldly to the throne of grace, that we should grow in Christ. Um, Calvin taught the, the doctrine of what some might call sanctification. As we accept Jesus, he gives us power to overcome sin. I'm so thankful, friends, that God doesn't just have enough grace to forgive us. He has enough grace to also change us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Is that where the verse ends? And to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, I'm so thankful that He, ha he will do that work. So the truth of the Dark Ages was steadily being rediscovered. At this point in, in time, there were Christians in Northern Europe that were studying the Bible, and, and they discovered that the Bible did not teach that babies should be sprinkled and baptized as infants, but in fact that as adults, adults should be baptized following Jesus' example of baptism by immersion. Now, these people were called the Anabaptists, and many of these Anabaptists lost their lives because they refused to baptize their infants and because they were rebaptized as, adu as adults. This was heresy, not only for the Church of Rome, but even the Reformers. The Reformers rejected them because they were, they were saying something that Luther didn't teach, Calvin didn't teach, and they had sort of closed their mind, and this was as far as they were going. But these Anabaptists had discovered something very, very important, the truth about baptism, being born of water and of the Spirit. By the way, tomorrow morning we're going to have a baptism here in the church, and you all are welcome, everyone is welcome to be a part of that celebration. So the Anabaptists were persecuted. By the way, there were some who said, if we catch you being baptized again, we'll help you. And many of the cities in Europe, of course, many of them were built on rivers or lakes. Many of the cities of Europe had metal cages built just for the Anabaptists. If they found they had been rebaptized as adults, they'd put them in that cage, they'd weight it down, throw it into the river. That was their, 
if you're so intent on being baptized, we'll help you. And uh, many, many Anabaptists lost their lives. Their followers, however, banded together in what became later a major Protestant movement, the Baptist movement. Each of these groups were discovering and rediscovering truths that had been lost during the Dark Ages. And as they rediscovered those truths, their their followers banded together in what became major Protestant denominations such as Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Baptists today. And so here we find these, these, uh, these truths were being discovered, practices were being changed, which had been followed for many, many centuries. Truth was being discovered. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how God is bringing that woman out of the wilderness? Isn't it amazing how God is going to have a remnant again who keep the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus Christ? He's, re, he's bringing the light of truth back to the Christian world. And I believe that each one of these groups of people have played an important role in the rediscovery of these truths. In England, John Wesley. John Wesley began teaching and, and, and doing his circuit writing and traveling around, and he wasn't allowed to preach in the official churches of the day, so he would preach in the open air, and people would come. And what was he teaching? He was, a teaching, he was teaching the doctrine of, of sanctification, of righteousness by faith. And by the way, John Wesley came here to Georgia. I don't know if you're familiar with the story. I could get... This could become a three-hour sermon tonight if I'm not careful, so I better move on. Um, but he was actually, he actually became converted. He was a, he was a devout, devout teacher, devout follower of Jesus, and his childhood and in his youth and in, his, in college, he formed a group of people that were very methodical about their religion. In fact, I have, I have, some, I have a number of, of biographies of Wesley. I have, I have whole sets of volumes on, on the history of the Anabaptists and Baptist church history, and, and I have all of Calvin's commentary on the Bible, which is 22 volumes. I mean, I love these reformers. I really enjoy reading from them. But um, Wesley, Wesley was, he was so methodical, they, had, they actually had a list of checklists of everything they should do. Like, if you wanted to be a Christian, on Monday morning, you asked yourself these 10 questions. On Monday night, you asked yourself these 15 questions, and you did this and this and this. And on Tuesday, it was a different set, and Tuesday night, and Wednesday morning, and Wednesday night. That's why they got nicknamed, are you ready for it? The Methodists. Yeah, at first it was sort of a derogatory term. That's what they were nicknamed, the Methodists, but the name stuck, and it's a great name. It's not a bad name. But um, that's, that's, what, that's where Methodism came about. But on the way to Georgia as a missionary, he was on a, he was on a ship with Moravian missionaries. These would be closer to the, in spiritual heritage to the Anabaptists, okay? This is the Pietist movement now, it's, which is a part of the... It came out of the Magisterial Reformation, but it was over in Germany. Now Wesley's coming from England. So on the ship going to Georgia, there are a bunch of Moravians. They encounter a terrible storm. The Moravians, even the women and children, are singing and at peace. He is scared for his life. And John Wesley says, I want what they have. And after sort of a failed stint at missionary work in Georgia, he returns and and connects with a Moravian in London. And he himself, in his own words, he he learned what righteous by faith is. And, um, and then, of course, he became an even more powerful teacher for, for Jesus. And um, the Methodist Church, of course, grew out of his teachings. In America, there was a teacher by the name of William Miller who discovered the truth of the second coming. Most Christians in those days believed that the, the world was going to gradually get better and better and better until Jesus would come and establish the millennium here. That was sort of their idea, and they were looking forward to things getting better and better. Well, they weren't getting better and better, and I have news for you, they're still not getting better and better. And um, I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I believe that, as we've studied, that Jesus comes again in clouds of glory and, and does away with the kingdoms of this earth. He has a place prepared for us in heaven where we spend the millennium, and after the millennium, he recreates this new earth, and it becomes the center of the universe. But this is something that William Miller began to discover, and he, he discovered the teaching of the second coming. Now, notice that w- William Miller accepted truths that had already been discovered by the Waldenses about the Bible, Huss's teachings about obedience, Luther's teachings about grace, Calvin's teachings of sanctification, the Anabaptist teachings about baptism. William Miller himself was a a Baptist. Wesley's teachings about 
holiness. But William Miller now is going to discover a, the second coming. After the, the disappointment we talked about the other night, when, the, when Jesus didn't come in 1844 as they expected, a group of people began to be called the Adventists because they were looking forward to Jesus coming. And they continue to discover more truths. We've been studying about some of these truths. Uh, many of them are centered in the book of Revelation. I think that's not an, not an accident. And friends, they're not my truth. I wouldn't be I would not be passionate about teaching this if it was my truth or if it was a church's truth. I only am passionate about these messages, friends, because I believe it's God's truth. I believe it's what God's Word teaches. And I believe it's what God's Word teaches is going to be taught in the last days. That's why I get so excited about it, because I really believe it. I really believe this is God's movement. And so a new movement began to spread around the world in South America and Europe and North America, the second coming, and which would become the Advent movement. They discovered truths such as the truth about what happens when you die. It's not the Greek mythology of a spirit and a, and a body and being separate. No, the Bible teaches something very different, and uh, we've looked at that. Um, Jesus is coming again soon. He will resurrect the dead at His second coming. And so for every truth that God has taught us in the Bible, Satan has come up with a counterfeit, a, a false imitation. God asks us to keep the seventh day as the Sabbath, and the counterfeit is a, a, uh, a counterfeit day of worship, the, the uh, first day of the week. God says that when we die, we sleep in the grave. Satan's counterfeit is that we go to heaven or hell or, or purgatory even at death. God says we should be baptized by immersion. Satan and his, his, his uh, delusion says that it's okay to do it in the most convenient manner, sprinkling or any other way. God gave us the truth about how we should live, and the, the enemy always has a counterfeit, you see. Now, what does this bring? The counterfeit brings into in spiritual confusion into our minds, and that's exactly why there's this message in Revelation call, calling out the spiritual confusion of the last days. Remember, Babylon means confusion. A spiritual entity called Babylon in the last days represents spiritual confusion. Now, in, in, in one of the last great messages to go to the world, recorded in Revelation chapter 18, we find this message being given. Revelation 18, verses 2 and 4, we're going to read. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, and a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, what did it say? Come out of her, my people, that lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. Now this tells me a couple things. First of all, this tells me that God even has people, he calls them his people, in Babylon. You notice that? He says, come out of her, my people. I believe, friends, that in, in every different manner of faith, every different way of believing in the Christian church, God has his people. But I also believe that in the last days, God is wanting to give the world a distinct message, a message of truth. It's not a message that's, it's not about denominations, you'll be saved if you're a member of this church, if your book, name's on the books over here. The, where I want to have my name written is in the book of life, in the book of heaven, okay? But it is about, are you a part of a people who, is, who are doing and believing and teaching what the book of Revelation says will be the message in the last days? Or are you even as one of God's people, are you in a system of religion which is described as confusion, described as Babylon, described as a mixture of the good and, and the bad, um, the, the, uh, the counterfeit, you might say, to God, what God really wants to do. So the question that I have to ask today I have to ask myself, and I think you ask yourself the same question. The question is, which of these two women in Revelation am I a part of? Which of them represent me? Is it the pure woman, the pure faith? That's the, that's the woman that emerges 
at the time of the end, keeping the commandments of God, having the testimony of Jesus, the faith of Jesus, giving the three angels messages of fear God and give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come and worship the creator. Worship the one, quoting the fourth commandment, worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Does that describe me? Or is a compromised faith with some good things and some not so good things? Does that describe me? The question is not my question because the invitation is not my invitation. It's a voice from heaven that we read in Revelation 18 saying, come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. And I'll be honest with you. That's why I have myself chosen to be a part of what I call the Great Advent Movement. The Great Advent Movement. Um, it's not because it's a perfect church. It's not because it's, it's the denomination. I don't think God defines denominations. I believe He defines movements. He defines ideas. He defines a group of people who are wanting to do His will to follow his word, to walk in his ways, and to, to be ready for him when he comes. And that's why I've chosen to be a Seventh-day Adventist, Amen. because I want to be a part of a people who are as closely as possible, as closely as possible following what Jesus taught, what the disciples taught, living as closely as possible as to how Jesus would live. And as far as I can see, this is the best group of people to do that with. This is the best way to, to walk in uh, a life with Jesus. And I think one of the reasons, it says here in Revelation 18, 4, come out of her, my people, lest you partake of her sins. I think it's, it's, we have an influence over one another, don't we? And one of the reasons God calls us to take a stand in the last days, He calls His people, my people, to take a stand in the last days and to, and to even be with others who believe the same way is because we need each other. I need other people to encourage me. I need other people to help me along my Christian walk. So what a blessing it is to today be growing and learning and knowing more about um, God's will and God's purpose for my life. I have been tremendously blessed to be a part of what, what we call the Advent Movement, the Great Seventh Seventh, second Advent movement. So I just want to encourage you as you consider um, God's voice speaking to your heart, I want to encourage you tonight, listen, if God's voice is speaking to your heart, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take a stand for Him, take a stand for truth. God is bringing a, a people together in these last days. And um, the second Advent movement, the Adventist church today, is arguably one of the fastest growing churches in the world. Um, just a little bit about it, I guess I could share with you. Um, about one million Adventists live in North America. You don't see that many Adventists. It's not that big of a church. But most of the Adventist church is outside of North America because we believe our Adventist message, the three angels' message, is a message that's supposed to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And so some 18 million Adventists live outside the United States and more than 1,000 a day are baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In fact, um, it's something more like 3,000 a day to, that are now baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, growing at a very, very remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, speed. No other church in the, in the Protestant world has as wide a global footprint as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, only the Roman Catholic Church has a wider influence. 180-some countries the Seventh-day Adventist Church has ministry and work in. And so why do I share that with you? It's not because the church is important. It's because the movement. You understand what I'm saying? It's the message getting out there. It's the, it's the work of God being done. People are listening. People are hearing. And, and I'm excited to be a part of that. And um, the, the way the church is structured itself, you might say, well, I don't need to join a church. No, but the, the work, the gospel says, the gospel commission says, go ye into all the world. Are you going to do that by yourself? Are you going to be a, a group of, part of a group of people, right? Obviously, God established a church of people, a body of believers to do his work. And so when you pay your tithes, um, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, when you pay your tithes, let's say you're a member of my church, it doesn't matter how many members I have. It doesn't matter if Dalton has 10 members or 1,000 members. If I'm the pastor, 
I don't get the tithe myself. The tithe actually goes to the worldwide mission of the church. And whether I pastor a small church or a big church, I get paid exactly the same as an Adventist pastor. So it's no, it's no personal benefit for me to, to have a church grow or to, to have a big church or a small church. It's all about the mission. It's all about taking this message to the whole world. And I'm just excited to be a part of it. I'm excited that Jesus is coming soon. He is going to have a people who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, who he can point to. The devil says, you know, where are those who follow you? And, the devil, and Jesus is going to point to... He's going to point to you and me, I hope. And he's going to say, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments. Here are those who have the faith of Jesus. Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. That's how I want to be described. I want to be in that group of people. How about you? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, tonight we just thank you. We thank you that you've given to us a message in Revelation which reveals why we're in the world we're in today and what you're trying to do in the world today. Oh, Father in heaven, today I just want to thank you that you are going to have a people. Prophecy says it, and prophecy has never failed. So you are going to have a people who are obedient, who, who have the gift of prophecy, who, who have the faith of Jesus, who are described as a remnant, just like the early apostolic church. Lord, we want to be and practice a pure faith. We want to believe what Jesus believed and teach what he taught. And I just want to pray, Lord, for each one here under the sound of my voice. Lord, there are many, many who have already made decisions to accept the message that they've learned and, and to become a part of your movement of taking this message to the world. Um, there are others who may still be struggling. And Lord, I just want to pray not for my ideas to supersede, but I want to pray for your Holy Spirit to do a work in their hearts and lives, that um, they might see the truth clearly and they might follow it. Lord, that's all we want. All we want is to learn more of you and to have more of you and to share more of you. So tonight, Father, I just thank you. Thank you that you have, through these four horsemen of Revelation, you revealed to us what happened in the early church, how we had that loss of, of fidelity and faithfulness. We also see, Lord, that you are doing a work to restore, to reform, and we want to be a part of that all the way to the very end. Lord, take our hearts and lives. Change what needs to be changed in our thinking and our ideas. And make us a part of your last day people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.